Welcome to the Emergency Medicine Conversations podcast. I'm Dr Louise Tuckwell, a senior CMO working in two southern regional hospitals. The aim of this podcast is to review emergency topics with a rural and regional perspective. The opinions expressed of a general education encourage everyone to check their local guidelines and those of the New South Wales Emergency Care Institute. I'm fortunate to have with me again today Dr. Catherine Lachesse, paediatrician working in rural southern New South Wales. So thanks for so much for joining me today, Dr. Lachesse. Thank you for having us. No worries. So we'll begin with a case. So we've got a two-year-old girl who presents with respiratory distress to the emergency department. She's got a cough, runny nose, and has needed increasing doses of salbutamol and has felt a little bit hot at home. So Dr. Lachesse, what other history do we need to obtain in a child presenting with respiratory symptoms? Hmm. So I guess initially you'd want to know the duration of the symptoms and how long they've been going on for. Have they been getting better or worse? What have they used to improve them? And exactly what are their respiratory symptoms? Is it cough? Is it difficulty breathing? Wheeze or strider? And then I often will demonstrate wheeze being more of an expiratory noise and strider as being that high-pitched inspiratory noise. Additionally, if they've already been diagnosed with asthma in the past or state that they've had a puffer, I ask a bit of questions around the diagnosis itself. So when they were, how often they're using the puffer, the frequency of the puffer, is it less than every hour, three hours or four, nighttime symptoms and response to treatment. And then additionally, uh, I would review, you know, the other type of things that generally, are they eating and drinking properly? Are they able to, um, are they continuing to avoid in stool normally? Are there any other symptoms, new onset rash, syncopal episodes, uh, or other that might indicate an allergic reaction that may be triggering that respiratory illness? Of course, uh, noting if there had been any choking episodes or uh, other that could be a foreign body. And of course, I always, especially if there's been a low grade temperature at home, I want to know how they did the temperature how frequently the temperature was elevated, and if the child is immunized. Sometimes uh, I could go into, if it is asthma, then we definitely will look at trigger factors, uh, including respiratory infections, maybe smoking in the home or cold air. And then previous courses of illness, are they someone with very brittle asthma who deteriorates very rapidly? Any pediatric or uh, intensive care unit admissions or transfers to tertiary care hospital? and their adherence to medication. So are they actually taking their puffers as prescribed? And are they on any prophylactic medications as, such as Singular or fluticasone or other inhaled steroids? Yeah, and of course, you know, with the respiratory, then I go into is also the respiratory history with regards to are there, is there signs of work of breathing? Have they had any cyanotic episodes? Uh, you know, did the description and nature of their cough, et cetera. Yeah, so, uh, and of course, asking if they also have allergies. Oh, fantastic. So, so essentially with all that, you're sort of assessing the severity. You're also looking at a more detailed sort of asthma history and then also considering that all that wheezes is not necessarily asthma in that. Sort That's of right. Yeah. Fantastic. Now for this patient, she had a history of croup at the age of eight months and recurrent wheeze, which had been responsive to salbutamol. Her father had a history of childhood asthma and he'd also recently travelled to Sydney to work on a construction site. She'd been drinking about two-thirds normal and had passed urine three times today. On examine, 
examination, her respiratory rate was 55. Her heart rate was 130. Saturations were 90% on room air. She had a temperature of 37.5 and weighed 18 kilograms. So how would you approach examining this child? Hmm. So observation, I think, is one of the most important things in pediatrics, just observing them before I would get too close to them. <laughs> so seeing, you know, how is a child interacting with her father or whichever carer has brought her in? Is she listless or is she, um, you know, is her color good? Is she able to talk, speak full sentences? Um, is she actively coughing then? Uh, can I, from, you know, from my position in the doorway, can I hear any additional sounds like wheeze or strider? And do I note any work of breathing while she's not very active? And so I think that's how I'd start. Then coming towards her, obviously, again, observing, is there any nasal flaring? Is there intercostal indrawing, subcostal indrawing? I generally will ask them, the parent who's there to take the shirt off of the patient prior to me even touching the baby or child. Again, observing for clammy skin, color, any lip cyanosis or essential cyanosis. Um, and again, the general demeanor of the child, are they irritable? Are they uh, air hungry? Um, and, and their interactions initially with myself and their level of hydration. And then obviously proceeding to my exam, which would be if the child is younger, I will do the heart and chest initially, just, just while they're quiet. Otherwise I would do a full head, ears, nose and throat exam. One of the important things, and as well as cervical lymphadenopathy, one thing I do do for strider is sometimes I'll put the stethoscope just above the mouth. If it's subtle strider or nose, if it's subtle strider, you can auscultate it that way. Uh, looking and assessing the hydration. In this child, you can see that they're a bit tachypneic, they're tachycardic and have low SAT. So I think the first thing I would do is give her oxygen. And on auscultation, sometimes being wary that just uh, because I don't auscultate wheeze, it may not, it may actually be a silent chest. So in a child with known asthma who has been responsive to ventral in the past, who maybe has been getting ventral regularly at home, or they may actually just have a silent chest. So in those cases, especially asthma, sometimes you can do a chest expansion. So if you get no chest expansion, you know that you should try ventral right away and see if that actually brings wheeze on. And we know then that they were actually very, very tight. So if there's minimal air movement, then that's also a sign of um, concern. And then in all children, I always complete a full exam. So something we say sometimes is that children are trying to, you know, hide a diagnosis from us. And so we have to find it. <laughs> and so, you know, looking for rashes that may be showing signs of uh, anaphylaxis. So definitely, you know, looking on legs, arms, abdomen, and completing, you know, a, a general uh, neurologic exam and abdominal exam as well. Oh, that's great. And I, I agree too. I think with the asthmatics in particular, it's, you know, the quality of the air entry you're listening for as well. So you can get fooled by that lack of the of the wheeze if you're not conscious of is the air actually moving appropriately. So, so that's And I guess great. I would just add uh, in that, sorry, I should have mentioned specifically that I would also do the full cardiac exam as well. Like, you know, looking at cap refill, ensuring there's no murmurs. It's unlikely in a child that has known asthma, but we never want to miss a cardiac or myocarditis or anything like that. Great. Excellent. Now for this child, when she was examined, she was found to have normal growth parameters and on inspection, she had suprasternal recession, intercostal indrawing, subcostal indrawing, and some minimal nasal flaring. On auscultation, she had bilateral wheeze, but no strider. 
Heart sounds were dual. Her abdomen was normal, had normal tone and strength, and there was no urticaria or rash. Now, it's very easy to conclude that this child has viral-induced wheeze or asthma, but what other conditions that we're sort of alluding to before do we need to consider in our differential? Yeah, so I think we mentioned a few, but just to reiterate, definitely, you know, asthma. (laughs) Croup, of course, foreign body inhalation, pneumonia. Uh, Sometimes pneumonia can present with crackles before we, um, and just a bit of ventolin clears them up and then you can really hear the creps. Allergy, so anaphylaxis, of course. Uh, Heart failure, which is unlikely. And of course, nowadays we need to consider COVID-19. And I guess, Louise, what I did forget to mention in my initial assessment of the patient is I would don my PPE. If, as they, the patient had been in Sydney, uh, if that had been a hot spot at the time, and I would uh, treat this patient as a risk factor for COVID. Yeah, absolutely. It's um, yeah, it's, it's really important at the moment, isn't it? So, yeah. and I guess also I would add in there uh, uh, like a viral, viral, viral wheeze or viral, um, uh, viral induced wheeze or a virus that could be triggering tr- triggering this as well. Oh, of course, yeah, great. So how would you approach the initial investigations and management for this patient? So, you know, for a child who has known asthma, who's presenting with bilateral diffuse wheeze, I think, you know, no initial investigations are required immediately. Uh, I guess, depending on your hospital guideline for COVID swabbing, (laughs) I would always follow that. And then, of course, treatment. So children under the age of six, in her case, she would qualify if you check the RCH uh, guidelines, she would qualify as moderate. Um, and so in that case, we would do our salbutamol six puffs every 20 minutes, uh, ipratropium bromide four puffs every 20 minutes and steroids. Uh, the first dose, if you use prednisolone, you could use two milligrams per kilo and dexamethasone, you can use 0.6 milligrams per kilo. Um, and uh, then I would reassess. So the most important is reassessing uh, once you've done your burst therapy about 30 minutes afterwards. Uh, to see uh, how things have progressed or initially right away after and then subsequently. Again, remembering that for children over the age of six, uh, we would increase the dose to 12 puffs of salbutamol and eight puffs of atrovent. That's great. And and I think it's really good to, um, as you say, have a look at the Royal Children's Hospital Asthma Acute Management Guidelines because they've got the tables and, and the management all outlined there, which is um, which is easily accessible. So that's that's great. Um, do you have a maximum dose of prednisolone or dexamethasone that you use based on those? Um, uh, those yeah, so prednisolone is um, sixty milligrams. Yeah, and sometimes if I'm getting into higher doses, I will uh, you know go on their ideal weight if they're obese. Dexamethasone for asthma, the maximum dose is sixteen milligrams. Sixteen. Yeah. And that's what it says on the uh, AMH children's dosing guidelines. So uh, you can do oral 0.3 to 0.6 milligrams per kilo and use it as a single dose. And you can repeat it the next day if required, but don't use it for more than two days. Okay, so fair enough. All right, so we've got Mm -hmm. um, 60 milligrams max for the prednisolone, dexamethasone up to 16 milligrams. And And just as a comment for the oral prednisolone, we usually do the two milligrams per kilo only on day one. Yes, And the subsequent days are one milligrams per kilo. Generally, I don't really go more than three days of prednisolone therapy. I will do maybe a further one or two days, but I 
only if there's ongoing need for sulfutamol. I know there's a five-day regimen as well, but I would do that on discussion with, you know, pedi I would as with a pediatrician. So I think that in general, I rare, I rarely do the five days of of uh, steroids of uh, prednisolone. No. Okay, fair enough. Good O. Um, so she was reassessed at one hour and had improved significantly. Sats were 95% on room air. The nasal flaring had resolved. There was minimal tracheal tug. Intercostal indrawing had improved and the wheeze had improved. Now, prior to sending a child home, I review them and their observations, but I sometimes find the interpretation of tachycardia in a child who's received burst salbutamol therapy difficult. How do you tend to approach this? Yeah, that's actually a very common problem. And often, even on the ward, I'll get, uh, you know, nurses will ask me, oh, her, she's very tachycardiac. Should I still give that other dose of Ventolin? And I'm like, yes. Um, so yeah, it is difficult. However, generally, you know, we recommend that patients be observed for, you know, three hours without having the Ventolin again prior to being discharged home. And by then their tachycardia should have resolved. Yeah, yeah. So Sometimes I know sometimes we discharge them a bit earlier, especially if they've had a really good response in a very reliable family. But generally, the tachycardia should resolve within an hour or two of the Ventolin. Great. If they, but yeah, but at three hours, it should have improved. Okay, no, that that's a good guide. I mean, I find sometimes even kids um, who are quite tight, you, you give it to them, and then after a while, actually, the heart rate does improve because they're not, you know, not yeah. as unwell. So that's yeah, that's definitely true. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, oh, good. So now I've come across the um, consideration that for any patient being treated for asthma who's not responding, that it's worth giving an IM dose of adrenaline as for anaphylaxis in case this is actually the diagnosis. And this could be life saving and would also actually help with the asthma. Um, do you have any thoughts related to that? Yeah, I think that that is a very good thing to consider. We know that, uh, you know, children with asthma often do have allergies and are often atopic. So it, and uh, generally if they're not responding, you know, we do have um, the protocol for patients who aren't responding and needing subsequent doses, but I do, I mean, more therapy like magnesium sulfate, et cetera. But I think that uh, in a child who's not responding at all, it, it could very well be anaphylaxis and um, uh, that would be, and the adrenaline itself would it would is a uh, dilator anyway, regardless. So a bronchial dilator. So it would be helpful with their improvement. So I think that that's a very good consideration, and everyone should consider that in their management. Fantastic. So I think we might save the management of the deteriorating asthmatic for another podcast. But I'd just like to have a brief chat about some things to consider given our current COVID situation. Mm -hmm. So are there any changes to our management of croup? given the current situation and concerns regarding aerosolization. That's right. So at this point, we're definitely promoting avoiding unnecessary nebulizer use as usage as this can uh, is aerosolizing procedure and would, um, would generate more uh, risk of infection should the patient be positive for COVID. Uh, we would really strongly promote the considering the use of potent steroids early. So using dexamethasone at 0.6 milligrams per kilo per dose. Um, and the use of nebulized adrenaline only in severe croup, i.e. Uh, significant strider at rest and significant work of breathing or hypoxia. Now, if in fact the patient does require nebulized adrenaline, there are a few options. And if you're in an ED with no isolation room, um, well, ideally an isolation room would be the room you would do the uh, aerosolizing procedure. Otherwise, a single room um, with a closed door is the second option. 
I know some EDs now have like a part of their ED specifically allocated for patients that are at higher risk of, of COVID. And if that was the case, then I would consider doing um, the aerosolizing generating procedure in that region's ED if there's a separate area. And then finally, to minimize risk to nursing staff and other staff involved, one consideration with parent, parents who are reliable um, would be to give them the nebulizer, uh, place the adrenaline in the re reservoir, and then only turning it on and having the parent hold the adrenaline on the baby as the nurse leaves. So the staff actually leave the room prior to the therapy being applied to the child so that they're at less risk and not in the room as the aerosolizing generating procedure is happening. Fair enough, that's a great point. And if you're running, you know, you're running that with um, the oxygen, mm -hmm. do you normally give, what, eight or 10 litres per minute flow yeah. rate? Yeah, 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 that's fine. Yeah, yeah, that's good. Okay, that's fair enough. So, and what about asthma and, and the COVID-related changes, um, obviously yeah. avoiding nebulizers once again? Yes, definitely trying to avoid nebulizers. And routinely, you know, we always strongly encourage MDI with spacer if they need oxygen therapy, low flow oxygen. We would uh, consider the early use of a parenteral bronchodilator so, and steroids. So steroids early, we know, and potent steroids again. So with this, with the prednisolone going with the two milligrams per kilo as opposed to the one milligram, um, and, uh, uh, and you can consider the, with the dexamethasone again, doing the 0.6 instead of 0.3. Um, and then if needed in place of using nebulized salbutamol, you can start with, you know, again, as you mentioned before, consider anaphylaxis and use adrenaline, but also magnesium sulfate is quite good. If you need to use nebulized salbutamol and uh, ipratropium bromide, generally that's for children in extremists. We know that MDI has better deposition in the distal alveola than a nebulized, and it should be reserved for patients who aren't actually verbal or talking and who are decreasing rapidly. That's fantastic. Children with bronchiolitis, they sometimes require nasal suctioning. Mm. Uh, and apart from wearing appropriate PPE, is there anything different we would do, you know, for this age group with the bronchiolitis when we're concerned about COVID? I think that, uh, I think really with nasal suctioning, I don't think that's as aerosolizing as other procedures. Humidified high flow nasal cannula is often a benefit. However, um, it would need to be discussed if um, it, with the pediatricians or the next team prior to using it in a child that with a high likelihood of COVID. Um, I would recommend nasal suctioning is fine, but and you could start with low flow. So start with low flow oxygen before having to go to the high flow nasal cannula. Yeah, no, no, I think that's a good point too about for us in the rural areas mm. that it's probably best to discuss with the nets or the peds any case before we start the high yeah. flow nasal prong oxygen and get them to have a look at the child prior to that as well, I think is a, yeah. is a good consideration. So I thought we might discuss the post-COVID pediatric inflammatory multisystem syndrome for another podcast. Yeah. But um, one thing I would, I would say, Louise, is that if we were going to start the the high flow nasal 
uh, oxygen and Nets advised it to really avoid doing it in the emergency department okay. and moving, moving the, because then you're just, if there's no negative pressure room, you know, and really finding a room with negative pressure uh, would be ideal. However, if, uh, well, I guess in your case, I would do it in the emergency department because you'd be in a rural and if a child was on a high flow, they'd be getting transferred out. So keep them in the ED, but trying to find a negative pressure room or an isolation room uh, with closed doors, if the, it, only if this child is high risk for COVID. If they're low risk, then an, isol like a, an isolation room would be fine or a room with closed doors would be okay. Again, getting the parent in care, ensuring that they are wearing masks um, as well and not just the, uh, the staff. And then really, if they end up on the high flow, then doing reviews, investigations and interventions really as a single encounter. So if you can batch everything together, so if the nurse is going in to do vitals, you know, that's when there's a reassessment being done, when the bloods are being taken, when the X whatever has to happen, all happens together. And again, deferring unnecessary interventions until a swab result is available. So if there is a suspicion of, if, you know, if an X-ray is wanted or whatever, either doing the X-ray before the high flow is initiated or doing the blood test before the, initi the initiation of high flow, or waiting for the swabs to come back and then doing the chest X-ray and the blood test and that kind of stuff. So trying to organize around that kind of thing. And of course, if this child is positive for COVID, if there is a failure of low flow oxygen after that discussion with next, they may discuss that CPAP or intubation is more appropriate. And remembering when we start to high flow, it's usually two, um, two, two liters per kilo is what we okay. say. Yeah, great. Oh, yeah, no, I think that's an excellent point about trying to sort of, you know, do several things at once. I often try and get to uh, get the blood sugar done at the same time as the nasal suction. Yeah. I know they're not going to like that. So, yeah. um, so it just, you know, it means they're screaming less and less aerosolization as well. So apart from just trying to minimize their discomfort in sort of one, one yeah. session. So, oh, no, that's, that's a great overview. When we are sort of thinking about COVID infection. Um, so what are some of the factors we should consider in diagnosing and managing this if it is an initial COVID infection? Mm. Um, I guess, uh, you know, one of the main things is to try and remember, uh, I mean, putting the PPE is very, very difficult and everything's really hard, but to really to try and properly don and off our stuff and uh, being as protected as possible and putting our, our safety uh, in the front of our minds and also remembering Sometimes it's easy to skip things and to really remember to do everything that we would typically do with other patients that would have the same affliction uh, or respiratory illness and really try to be as thorough as possible. And it is true that, you know, generally speaking, uh, children up until this point, I cannot speak to the Omicron variant because I don't think enough is known about it, but children are often well and less severely affected than adults. Um, I think we're seeing some different patterns with Omicron, but I can't again speak to that. Um, the most common presentation in this outbreak with previous variants has been abdominal pain and diarrhea for children. So less respiratory and more diarrhea and abdominal symptoms. So to keep that in the forefront of your mind when, um, uh, when thinking of COVID. And also children have been presenting with chest pain and no fever. And I think that was seen in Sydney. Um, there are, got COVID guidelines for New South Wales. And um, again, RCH does have a very good outline on uh, of asthma. Uh, the RCH clinical guidelines also does a very good outline of asthma management. Okay. Oh, that's great. 
And then the same goes for avoiding nebulizers and things um, and high flow and whatnot as, as with the other cases. So yeah, um, definitely, yeah, of course. And, and when you mentioned like that, the chest pain with no fever, so there's been what's a meri- pericarditis and myocarditis? Yes, yes that's correct. That's okay, correct. interesting. So um, and uh, and we don't, my understanding is, you know, for COVID, we don't routinely do a, a chest X-ray if it's not otherwise indicated. No, no, no. I think you would uh, just treat as symptoms in clinical presentation. Fantastic. So, Ono, oh thanks very much, Dr. Lechese. It's That's been a really good overview of, of a, you know, common presentation, which has been made more complicated in recent times yeah. with the COVID <laughs> thrown <Yeah>. in there. <laughs> um, yeah, I even forgot. It's just, you know, how it slips out of our mind. I even forgot to mention PPE when we were talking about respiratory, but now that is just, it just has to be primary thought, you know. Absolutely. So um, I know that's that's very helpful. We'll um, we'll appreciate all the support you give us with managing our um, with our, our children, particularly those with respiratory symptoms. And yeah, very grateful for the time you've spent today with us. Again, it's always a pleasure, Louise. Thank you for having me. <laughs> Thanks so much.